At the beginning of the 20th century, a one-of-a-kind tower rose above the skyline of New York City, a total masterpiece of architecture and engineering unlike anything seen before. Some even went as far as comparing this great property to the Egyptian pyramids. Not only would this be the tallest building in the world, but it would also exhibit futuristic technology. So why might you ask, is this a tale of urban decay? Well, because the marvel was demolished in 1968 and replaced by a total monstrosity. And despite photographs of its greatness, the legacy has been nearly forgotten. This is the story of Singer Tower. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. Have a look at New York City's North River in 1679. This is the first known graphic documentation of the area, and if we focus on the lots, we'll see a pasture that belonged to John Haberding, which was sold in 1722 for only $600. But beyond it, off in the horizon, you'll notice a massive cross. This is the exact location where the world's tallest building would be erected over 200 years later. At the turn of the century, the Singer Manufacturing Company needed to expand their Manhattan office to accommodate a rapidly growing workforce. In the process, this American manufacturer of sewing machines was also going to make a big gesture. Located in the Financial District, on the corner of Liberty Street and Broadway in Lower Manhattan, land values had reached a phenomenal high. So a trend to build into the sky was mounting. Hence, Frederick Gilbert Bourne, an American businessman and the fifth president of the Singer Manufacturing Company between 1889 and 1905, commissioned the construction of his new tower, with Ernest Flagg as head architect and designer. On September the 19th, 1906, the work began by running a steam line from the old building for the operation of air compressors needed for the sinking of foundation caissons. Cranes with 75-foot masts and a capacity of 40 tons were also set up. This project was difficult from the start as the building foundation went far below the waterline. Men were required to work in pressurized environments, which was a new and very dangerous technology. Another extreme difficulty was the lack of space as the construction site was on one of the most congested parts of the city. At street level, the crew had less than 100 feet of space to work within. So a solution to have a constant two-truck rotation of material coming in or waste going out, as well as having parts pre-assembled off-site when possible, these measures helped synergize the operation. One of the more complicated shipments was for the ribs of the dome, which were awkwardly shaped and rose to great heights. The sheer amount of material was amazing. For example, the brick face required delivery of over 5 million bricks, so people below watched with great curiosity. The concept for the building incorporated parts of Beaux-Arts and French Second Empire style. No expense was spared in providing every modern device for comfort and convenience and the safety of the tenants. What's more, the design called for the tower to be set far back from streetline so that the executive offices on the 33rd through 40th floor would have nearly zero noise pollution or dust, not to mention a magnificent view. The technological amenities went far beyond luxurious and were controlled below ground in the engineering room by a massive staff. 
The building was so complex that it basically required an operation comparable to that of a ship crew to run what was one of the most complex engineering rooms in the city. For starters, the engine room contained the building's very own power plant, providing current to nearly 4,000 outlets and grand lobby lighting set to offer a daylight effect at night. Furthermore, the exterior was illuminated by 30 18-inch projectors designed by General Electric. The power plant consisted of five units with a capacity of 1.4 kilowatts. Another room was solely dedicated to the disposal of paper waste with the use of a gigantic press. Paper could be disposed of to this point by various chutes throughout the tower. There were also vacuum pumps to power the centralized vacuum system with outlets in each office. Although this was not the first time such a system was installed, the Singer building had vacuum service 24-7, which was unique. Obviously, the entire building was outfitted with central heat, so the furnace chambers were sprawling. Every suit had its own thermostat so that tenants could adjust the temperature as needed, 1.2 thousand in total. However, this part of luxury probably came at a serious environmental cost from today's perspective, as heating the building when the temperature was below zero consumed two tons of coal per hour. Not to get off topic here, but if this was just the coal required for the heating, imagine how much the power plant might have consumed. And now imagine that every other building in the city was also burning solids. But don't worry, because these numbers are only alarming from today's perspective. In 1908, when the building was finished, it was considered to be highly efficient and environmentally friendly. And the news only gets better because if you were to be inside of the Singer Tower, you were breathing centralized, filtered air. The air quality was also taken care of by the engineers. For starters, all toilets were ventilated into shafts by means of electric fans. So-called room air was washed, cleansed, and humidified in the building's spray chambers and eliminator. Basically, air would pass through four sheets of water to remove dust and in the summertime create a cooling effect. Moving on, there was a refrigeration plant for the cooling of drinking water used throughout the building. Sinks were fitted with push-button taps delivering a choice of hot, cold, and icy water, but not before running through a filtration plant to ensure the best quality. Water pressure was also an issue as the building soared to never-before-seen heights. This was solved by massive pumps that sent water up to various holding tanks, harnessing gravity to do the rest. There was also an entire secondary system of pumps and tanks for the New York City Fire Department. In total, there were about 750 plumbing fixtures, and when looking at this chart, you'll notice that the waterworks go practically up to the lantern. Speaking of the lantern, this is probably my favorite feature of the building. Let's start with the flagpole that extended 62 feet above the lantern beneath it, which would have been 612 feet above Broadway. And because architects realized that it would be taking frequent lightning hits, they utilized a quality iron as opposed to a customary wooden mast. The pole sank into the lower floor of the lantern and was extremely difficult to erect, requiring immaculate precision. The lantern itself was deceptive as it seemed small from street level, an illusion of scale. In reality, this part of the tower alone would have been the size of a five-story building. To reach the lantern, you would have taken elevator number six to the 40th floor, 
and from there follow a path of ladders and steep open stairs before reaching the highest attic in the world. You would have then opened a small trap door and found yourself on a small platform 600 feet above New York City. This was the place where the Singer flag would be raised and lowered. Below the lantern was the dome with an observation deck and executive suites. According to records, this was the most dangerous aspect of construction as the job involved mystifying heights, steep angles, and no footholds. There was also the risk of simply being blown away by a gust of wind. Furthermore, this part of the building was extra distinguished by the masonry cut stonework, which included over 4 million pounds of limestone above the 33rd floor. Obviously, this was also an impractical height for such a heavy material. This part of the tower is where the observation deck was located and where the company directors enjoyed the entire 34th floor furnished with mahogany furniture. The electric clock system was also a feat of engineering. Known as the Magneta Electric Clock System, a series of batteries and contact points controlled time throughout the entire building as governed by one master clock, which wound itself automatically. The master clock kept time for all other clocks with an independent network of wires, which were fully insulated by a heavy rubber to avoid interference to the timekeeping by other currents. The engineering room contained a massive telephone switchboard, which allowed for calls to be placed outside the building as well as internally. The internal network could even access the tower's bank of high-speed elevators. The Otis Electric Company had set up its elevator plant on the 40th floor, enabling visitors to reach amazing heights on a single ride. The car capacity was 2,500 pounds at 600 feet per minute, with a freight capacity of 5,000 pounds, but at a much slower speed. The elevator cars had safety locks for loading and unloading, as well as safety mechanisms to prevent freefall. These elevators were high-tech, running on a system using electric light signals. The chief engineer had an indicator board displaying the given location of all cars at any given time. Visitors were also amazed by the new technology of automatic doors. Sadly, in the building's first few months, the elevators were involved in at least two deaths. A painter was decapitated, while a plumber's assistant was crushed between the elevator cab and a shaft. The Singer building also had a massive vault, setting records for the time. The tower was officially completed in 1908 and opened to the public surpassing Philadelphia's City Hall building in terms of being the tallest building in the world. The building soon became a symbol of Manhattan, especially at night when the floodlit tower stood out. It remained the tallest building in the world until the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company Tower was completed a year later. Located at 24th Street and Madison Avenue, also in New York City, lucky for them, their masterpiece still stands. By 1921, the hype had cooled down, and the first signs that the Singer flag might not fly above New York City forever appeared when the building was listed for sale at $10 million. Four years later, a deal with Utility Power and Light Corporation was made for the acquisition of the property. Although an agreement involving an $8.5 million cash transaction was made, the sale never actually finalized according to company records. However, the seed was planted. 
and the following years would gradually see decisions that I could best describe as degenerate with regards to the artistry of Singer Tower. The lighting system went through many changes and the building began to fade into the skyline of New York, no longer appearing in its nearly arrogant glory. In 1939, the copper ornamental dome of the tower was restored, but to the detriment of the tower's appearance as elements began to be changed. In 1947, the flagpole and the roof crestings were removed, and the famous face of the building, so loved by many New Yorkers, was slowly becoming a bastardized version of itself. In 1949, there was an electric fire that left one person injured, and in 1958, the front revolving doors were replaced by standard ones, and the next year the historic and beautiful elevators were replaced to comply with new codes. Two large storefronts on the first floor of the building were turned into many smaller spaces. Other skyscrapers surpassed the Singer building in height, and the tower entered obscurity. By 1958, it was the 16th tallest building in the city. Just 50 years after it had been built, it was barely noteworthy. In 1961, the company announced that it was moving to Rockefeller Center and that the building was to be sold, but for real this time. Lake Coven Rose bought the building and then sold it to Financial Plaza Incorporated almost right away according to property records. William Zackendorf, a real estate developer, bought the building and unsuccessfully tried to move the New York Stock Exchange there. But the final nail in the coffin occurred in 1964, when United States Steel bought the building and other neighboring buildings in an attempt to demolish the entire block and build a 54-story tall headquarters, a decision that probably came down to square footage. In 1965, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission was created, and their goal was to save and preserve many of the notable buildings in New York City that were being demolished. The Singer Building was one of the most iconic buildings in the city at one point, but despite that, it was not given landmark status. This meant that the commission could not protect it from demolition. Sam Roberts, a New York Times writer, was quoted in saying that it wasn't considered worth preserving compared to other buildings in the city. The executive commissioner said had it been given landmark status, the city would have had to find someone to buy it, which would have proven a great challenge. Although I'm only speculating right now, it could be assumed that the maintenance expense of complex masonry work far above public sidewalks would have been spectacular spectacularly pricey to upkeep in modern day, and spectacularly dangerous if neglected. When it comes down to it, there were other buildings more worthy of saving in many people's eyes. So demolition began in September of 1967 and was completed by early 1969. A writer for the New York Times said that the lobby looked like a bomb hit it. Another writer from the New York Daily commented that the singer fell victim to a melody called progress. It was true. Despite how magnificent it was in its heyday, the building would soon just become another small piece of the city that was rapidly growing throughout the 20th century. 
the Singer Building was the tallest building to ever be demolished until the World Trade Center collapsed during the 9-11 attacks, and it was the tallest building to be destroyed by its owners until 270 Park Avenue, also known as J.P. Morgan Chase Tower, was demolished in 2019. What is now known as One Liberty Plaza, but was originally called the U.S. Steel Building, now stands in its place. Each building of the plaza is 37,000 square feet, which is much bigger than the 4,200 square feet of the Singer Tower, offering twice the combined interior than the Singer Building did. The Singer Building was influential in many ways and caused people to discuss the ethics of building such tall structures. The architect on the project, Ernest Flagg, was known for being critical of many skyscrapers that already existed. He was an advocate for skyscraper reform and tried to convince the public that many tall skyscrapers blocked light from reaching the surrounding streets and that it was a detriment to society. So we might take away that the artistry in his great building was a compromise to a concept he was generally against. Imagine how he must be turning in his grave at the thought of what replaced his greatest work. On the other hand, Jason Barr, an architectural writer, has commented that the Singer Building was a transitional building in terms of the development of skyscrapers. It was known for being an architectural triumph and showed the world the potential of steel frame skyscrapers. It is a building that inspired the future of buildings to come. Some were actually happy to see the building go. A writer from the New York Globe called it an architectural giraffe in the early 1900s. Finally, and perhaps one of the best justifications for a wrecking ball was that some critics of the project had noted the design would have made it very hard for people to be rescued from the tallest floors in the case of a fire or an emergency. The executives of the Singer Corporation could see the Statue of Liberty and the Port of New York from their office. Traders from all over the world would see their iconic building as they arrived to the shores of America. From an American perspective, we had a feeling of how big this company was in its day by the statements that they made. But even when you travel the world now, 100 years later, their mark is noticeable everywhere. I learned about Singer Tower because I found a Singer sewing machine in a barn near the border of Ukraine, of all places. This machine was one of the things that immigrants had taken back to their village after years of working in the States. Singer was such a significant company that wherever you travel in Europe, and I believe many places in the United States, you'll come across their legacy. Hell, I am in a water tower in northeastern Poland. What did I find? Architect Ernest Flagg said, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. A more artistic conception than this tower would be hard to conceive. And it is doubtful if an equally magnificent tower will ever be built unless it is literally a copy of the Singer Building. A statement I couldn't agree more with. This script was largely based on Otto Francis's 1908 book, A History of the Singer Building Construction, containing far more information on Singer Tower. I would love to further bring life to the memory of this great building by preparing an audiobook version of the publication here on its history. So let me know if you like the idea by subscribing and sharing this video with friends. If we get 1,000 new subscribers, I will painstakingly record 
every word of a technical book from 1908. Otherwise, check out our video on the Philadelphia Underground Concourses, our series, Tales of Urban Decay, and our daily stories. This is Ryan Sokash, signing off.